Welcome to another special episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, with a special Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. After all, one meaning of corona is a halo, so let's find the silver lining in this outbreak. On Dr. Doctor, we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. While we're normally heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, this episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Today's guest will be well-known to listeners of uh, Dr. Doctor. It's Dr. Kevin Major, psychiatrist from um, Harvard Medical School in Cambridge, Massachusetts, an expert in all things anxiety. Uh, we will be talking about pandemic psychology. Kevin, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Great, Tom. Good to be back. Thank you for having me. We're going through something that we've never had to do in this country before, that I know of, social distancing. What precedent is there for what we're experiencing now, especially from a, a psychological viewpoint? Well, I don't think there is any precedent to what we're having on the scale we're having it right now. So I think that more people than ever are finding uh, new sources of threats everywhere. So my patients have been telling me that my patients, for instance, with OCD have been saying, this is exactly what I've been living with for decades. <laughs> Everything's contaminated. <laughs> people are dangerous. You can't get near anyone. And so in some way, we are like right now living in a time when everyone is getting an experience of what it's like to have an anxiety disorder. So do your LCD patients feel like they finally understand me? Some of them do, actually. Well, that's beautiful. They do, because um, we are living in a time where we just, there's so much uncertainty. And that's the hardest thing. Yes. Like, it's uncertain. Like, how do you even get the right medical advice? How do you, and so how do you find out the real facts? There's so much that's unknown and everything is changing so quickly. But what we do know doesn't change is the way anxiety works. Yes. And anxiety is, it's, it's straightforward once you understand it. And this can be a great time for people to learn more about how anxiety works in themselves and they will be stronger for it. So where... Where would you start? I mean, I have, um, I've had some patients recently who have been mental health counselors, and they said there's just a lot of free-floating anxiety out there. What do they mean by that? Yeah, free-floating anxiety is like being in a cloud of charged particles. <laughs> <laughs> you, there's so many small uncertainties. There's so many threats everywhere. And you end up with this just sense of anxiety, and it's hard to pinpoint it to any one concern. Because again, there are these charged particles everywhere. But free-floating anxiety really is your body responding to a heightened presence of challenges. And so what you're really feeling in free-floating anxiety is your body's own adrenaline. That's the thing. Anxiety simply is adrenaline that you're viewing as a threat. So the more you are on the alert for your own adrenaline, the more you will sense this free-floating anxiety because there's nothing directly you know, that you can see that's triggering it. In fact, the whole situation is the challenge. And so then some people experience it as this. But I would say it's like, as always, it's like a car revving while in neutral. Ah, uh, yes. The engine is revving. The gas is going through. You know, and you need to put it in drive. 
Ah, okay. The response is you need to employ this adrenaline by embracing the challenges that you're facing. So in other words, if you try to calm down, which is what their neighbor is actually telling them to do, it actually makes it worse because this adrenaline needs an outlet. It's like saying adrenaline is bad or dangerous. Right, and it's good. You don't need to calm down. You need to use it. So how should the numerous people now with adrenaline surges be using it? Ultimately for love and service. They need to be seeing how do they best, like for instance, you really want to help people, well then pray for them. Adrenaline will help you pray. It will make it easier for you to focus and to put your heart into what you're saying. It will give intensity to your praying. So how does adrenaline, give an example, how can people use adrenaline to pray better? Well, no, the very fact that you feel charged, I always say anxiety is prayer waiting to happen. <laughs> it's, it's, I love anxiety that. is work waiting to happen. Anxiety is this unformed energy ready to be put to use. So if you can channel that into focus in prayer, it would be a fantastic act of love and service. So adrenaline uh, is there so that you can meet a challenge, but you need something to stretch for. Right. You need to be like, a, it's like someone, I always say, practicing pole vaulting. <laughs> and, and they need to set the bar high enough so that they can use their adrenaline at its best. And when you have something positive to strive for, an ideal, I, ideally, <laughs> so some kind of ideal to be striving for, now the adrenaline can actually help you to attain it. Well, there, any ideal will do that. But the, 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 the ideal of all ideals is love. So, you know, and so to be kind in a moment when it's hard, to be patient, to be understanding, to be generous, those can all be challenges you set for yourself. And the adrenaline will help you to do it. So you've got Joe and Jane American out there, some of them living alone, some of them with just a few other people, and they're feeling, they're in this charged ionic cloud right now of anxiety. Yeah. What what would be something they could do where they are living with a small number of people or alone? Yeah. Well, I think we'd want to back up and see, you know, cause I, you'd, you'd want to see in their ordinary life, how do they normally approach challenge? Okay. Okay. And how are they living kind of in, in like together? Um, are they really bringing out the best in each other? Hmm. is the situation capable of bringing out the best in them? And they always can do that. So I think what people need, I, you know, the advice I'm trying to give the most is you actually need to be not um, constantly charging yourself with more news so that you just have more things to worry about, but you need to be living with a sense of order. So one of the questions I had, but now you've kind of brought it up, is what is the right places ways and amounts to consume news at this time. Yeah. So I think very little of the news you can read day to day has any use. Very little. The only news that I personally need is, is there a cure? Uh, <laughs> you know, has the shelter in place order been lifted? <laughs> Most of the news is meant to be sensational. And so it is, it's designed to trigger you. They're wanting people to click. So you need a schedule for when you will look at the news. 
and I think it should be not that much time per day. Have some kind of trusted sources, but I usually tell people they need to have a regular life of work and then a regular family life. But having a sense of order in your schedule and then keep the little deadlines throughout the day so that you start on time and you stop on time. It is powerful for our minds to keep to these ordinary rhythms and routines. Well, I think this brings up something that I don't know how many years ago you started, but it's a website of yours, optimalwork.com. Could you give us a little background on why you started this and how it applies to exactly what you're talking about now? So my practice has always focused on treating anxiety disorders and developing the tools of cognitive behavioral therapy so that people can really thrive on the challenge that anxiety presents. And so I was teaching people how to reframe their triggers as opportunities to do a new kind of learning and how to pay full attention to the sensations of anxiety that they have so that they can actually run their course more smoothly. And then how to challenge themselves with exposure activities. And I was finding that, of course, it's this is extremely powerful. There are yes. no treatments in all of psychiatry that have effect sizes anything like this approach. And without medication. And without medication. Most medications are aimed at decreasing adrenaline, which makes it seem bad. Uh, very good. And we don't want adrenaline to ever seem bad. We want people to see how to put it to a good use. So people with anxiety disorders, they get afraid of adrenaline itself. And that's what kicks off the real disorder. And then they see that, well, adrenaline comes when they don't think this way, but whenever I'm challenged. And so they end up avoiding challenges. But the more we avoid challenges, the more we're you know, complaining about them or dreading them, the more incapable we are of thriving on them and actually growing. And so it became clear to me that we have to help people thrive on challenge. Now, where's the place where that normally takes place? It's in our work. Usually people's work is what actually is where they're best at thriving on challenge. And if you tune up your approach to work, tune up your attitude to make it more and more positive, to see higher and higher goals in it, you know, that's reframing. You know, and you bring your attention wholly to the task at hand, you know, truly silencing and settling it before you start working, then it, that actually is doing the exact same thing as when you're teaching people how to welcome the emotions and things, like, for instance, anxiety, and then setting challenges for yourself in work. So I found that, well, one, if you do those three things, you enter into a state called flow. And flow is your state of highest intelligence. You have the best attitude, the best attention, and you're most completely capable of fully putting your heart into what you're doing until it's done. It's so, being in the zone. We use that phrase. Exactly. Well, it just happens that the same steps I was using in teaching people how to handle anxiety and to thrive on it, those are the exact same steps you need to go into flow. And that work can train people in how to develop kind of like the skills they need you know, to really address challenge. So this, these three steps are not just needed by someone with anxiety, but they can benefit anybody. Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, they, they correspond you know, to just the, very, the, the powers of our mind, our intelligence, our memory, and our will. 
So those three steps are just those in that order. So it's, it's something very deeply, there's a deep anthropology behind it. Uh, and, but there's also, it's extremely practical. There's also a wonderful neuroscience behind it that just by following those, you know, by, by flipping your attitude towards something to see yes. okay, how can this bring out the best in me and then settling your attention entirely into the present moment and then in challenging yourself in some direct way. It's like this cascade, this neuro, it's like a neurological cascade that spreads from the very front of your frontal lobe to the whole of the brain to integrate it. So then how does somebody take advantage of this through optimalwork.com? So on optimal work, there's a, you'll see that the core of it is what's called a golden hour. And the golden hour is what we call it when people go through these steps um, of tuning up their attitude and their attention and setting a challenge so that they can go into flow at will. Flow, in my mind, is the cure for anxiety. And it's, in fact, what happens if when you're in a state of high anxiety, you reframe, you flip yourself. If you have a great challenge and you're now going to embrace it, you can go right into flow. So I saw more and more, you know, for instance, for depression. Well, depression, people are complaining and negative. They're more caught in their own heads by ruminating and they have more increasing lethargy. But it's the same three things that reverses it. It's the same for addictions. So these, this is so work can become like a gym, like an exercise routine. If you take just a few minutes before, especially the first hour of work to tune it up. And that's what optimal work teaches people how to do. Sit down, take a few minutes before you begin working to turn that first hour into a golden hour. It's like high intensity interval training. <laughs> I love that. And, that. and then you do the golden hour and then you take a complete break. So Upwork is enough to teach people, I think, these core skills that then treat um, the, for instance, anxiety disorders, not by trying to get rid of adrenaline, which is a bad idea, but by showing them how to put it, the car in gear. So we're back to Joe and Jane American. They've got the free-floating anxiety at home. How do they start their, their reframe, step one? Well, how do they start their day? <clears throat> so I would want to begin with the very first moment of the day. Ah, yes. That's where reframing starts. I believe that if you want to have the best attitude and energy throughout the course of the day, the best thing you can do is, if they can, jump out of bed the moment the alarm sounds. So you have this decisive embracing of the day from the very first moment. And I think we Catholics have a wonderful practice of the morning offering. Yes. Where you try to make an offering of all the challenges of the day to say yes to them, to embrace those challenges. So to start the day like that is very powerful because now you're treating the whole day like an opportunity not like a threat. So that's the, the major reframe. Today is an opportunity, not a threat. Exactly. And your one chance in a way to label the entire day as an opportunity is when you first wake up. Very good. So jumping out of bed, if you can, or getting out of bed as soon as you can, and, uh, and making an offering of that whole day, looking forward to embracing the challenges that come. Basically, in, in Christian theology, you can replace the word challenge with the word 
the cross. <laughs> right? So yes. it's, and it brings out the best in us when we embrace it, not flee from it. So that is the power of, of you know the, of our Lord's grace. Actually, is that we're able you know to embrace the cross, so it brings out the greatest love and service. Would you say that people who are at home now, or just even if they are working but they're still coming back home, they could benefit from optimalwork.com, whether or not they are going off to a job? Yes, yes, they certainly could. So because this is about how, in fact, there's, uh, it's about how do you reframe the challenges you're facing, which again is like, how do you embrace the cross in daily life? So if you are facing challenges, then this is showing you how to be embracing them. I can't remember if we were talking before or, or during the section we're recording on some of your OCD patients and their response to this. Yes, it might have been the beginning here, the, with the sense that uh, now everyone knows what it's like to have OCD. Oh, I just think that's, that's wonderful. Now, how is that awareness helping them? Are they able to take on their challenges better because they think other people understand them? Uh, the, well, it depends on, of course, you know, it's really case by case. Sure. But when people have things like OCD or panic disorder or other kind of the, 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 your, our usual anxiety disorders, and then there's this kind of global increase in challenge. You know, yes. And what happens is the anxiety for them kind of gets shunted into their usual topics. Oh. So it's just an increase. So they may not be any, like, especially concerned about the coronavirus per se. But, oh, I but see. The concern about leaving the uh, the shower running and having to go and check the shower or making sure that they turn off the dryer. You know, they, so, it dep- so oftentimes anxiety disorders get channeled on the usual tracks. Okay. Uh, another area in talking to physicians around the country where there's a lot of concern is a number of nurses and physicians are not reacting very well to this. They are incredibly scared. There are physicians who are being consulted to see COVID patients who just want to review charts and not go into patient rooms. Uh, is this the same approach for them? What, what would you recommend for people in those situations, especially those people who are handling it well, but surrounded by people who are not? Well, I think it's, it's very hard for us to know exactly what's going on. Many times those physicians have more elderly relatives they're afraid of giving it to, you know, and they're not especially concerned about themselves, but the people that they're with. So it's very hard to judge sure. people and the decisions that they're making. But um, we can you know, be admiring, I think, the incredible generosity of so many of the healthcare professionals. Oh, yes. You know, and, and, and the more we can, I think, hold that up as an example, maybe then the more the rest of the physicians and you know, people will be able to follow it. They need to see more of the good example. Yes. And then, then they can challenge themselves more easily to embrace it. But when it's all so uncertain in the beginning and no one knows what's going on, it's hard for them to know how to, how to embrace that challenge. That's very good. Yesterday, one of my 14-year-old sons, who's trying to figure out what to be when he grows up, said, Dad, what kind of person does the world need more of? And of course, being a dad, I said, well, there's only one kind of person. He's like, well, what's that? Well, saints, of course. I, he was looking for something much more practical, but I don't think there is anything more practical than, than being a saint. Um, well, the wisest answers are the most practical. They just don't sound like it. In the moment. You're right. 
one thing that's going on is that many offices like ours in dermatology have greatly decreased the number of patients we're seeing out of trying to protect the population from COVID. So we're just trying to see the more serious problems. But it seems like in a month or two or however long we're kind of sheltered in, there's a lot of pent-up need for other medical problems that aren't being addressed now that usually would be. What do you think the psychological effects of that are on patients who, who can't be seen or, or might be seen through telemedicine? Yeah, I, there's, uh, this is only going to become a more pressing issue. You know, right, my, right now, my mom is actually in the midst of uh, chemotherapy for breast cancer. Oh, my. And, and, so, and, and she had a neutrophil count of 200 and mm. all these issues where, you know, uh, big medical issues. And uh, it requires just an extraordinary, you know, patience, you know, and we would hope faith too, you know, and to be able to see um, that this is going to be different for a while and we're not going to be able to take care of the, the usual conditions to the same extent. Now, I think our healthcare system will start to adapt to be able to also handle pressing non-COVID issues. Yes. You know, it, I think every week has been a leap forward in the medical response in this country. So, and I think we're going to see that week by week, you know, that things will progress rapidly, I hope, in, in many ways. Well, that's why we keep doing these podcasts regularly because things are advancing so quickly. Are, are, there, are there any uh, ramifications of, in your specialty, meeting people by telemedicine versus in person. Are there any studies in that? Are you, are you able to be as helpful like we're talking now versus someone who's across the room from you? So I have occasionally practiced telemedicine because patients travel or they go away and you're transitioning. You know, there's something that happens. Sure. Um, I have found personally that with anxiety disorders, telemedicine has worked just fine. Great. Um, with uh, depression, um, it's a little more challenging. Okay. There is, there's almost like sometimes a communication of energy that you get, you know, the, you know, when you're face to face, it's not the same. And over my years of treating people when there's depression, uh, you, they, I feel like they slip away much more easily. Uh, it, so much it's almost like when there's not an in-person appointment, it's easy, especially for people with depression, to miss appointments, to not call, and then you lose track of them. So I ended up saying, eventually, I only treat certain things, you know, or continue treating certain things, like OCD especially, um, you know, by telemedicine. And the other things I prefer not to. So for, for certain patient groups, this is just a... Oh, a patch for a time being. This should not be long term. Otherwise, it they should not be. Yeah, that's very I good. And also in treating you know patients who are you know with a chronic psychotic disorder like schizophrenia, you wouldn't want to do this very long term. Hoarding, hoarding has been going on a lot. What's the psychology behind it? Is it that people want something they can control when there's something bigger that they can't or, or something else? I think what we're seeing right now is not hoarding in the psychiatric term of it. So I think what, what's happening is there's just like a, a, a little mass hysteria, you know, that, that people think that everyone else is stocking up on something. So they want to stock up on it. Oh. Uh, it's very different than when you have a true hoarder. So keeping up with the Joneses. 
I think that's all it is. And it seems like it's the prudent thing to do because one of our normal standards of prudence is what are other people doing? <laughs> and so it's more, it's more like just a, a misjudgment and imprudence than it is any kind of like true hoarding behavior. That's really, really good advice. Yesterday, The Atlantic published an article, an excellent article about how, how this ends. And they said, quote, after infections start ebbing, a secondary pandemic of mental health problems will follow because people are cut off from soothing human contact and our social rituals are, are now tinged with danger. What do you think of that statement? I, I think it's unnecessarily alarmist. Ah, so go on. I think that um, some sometimes there is a tendency, you know, to um, try to like forecast the next pandemic. Oh yes, you know, and uh, and then including like an emotional pandemic. We do not yet know how we're going to do as a culture. As you know, in some ways, this may help to bring out the best in us. Often, I think cataclysms, catastrophes make people reevaluate what matters in life. Suddenly, the little things that had separated them from loved ones don't seem as important. If people start, because you are, many of us are with you know, our families much more right now. Yes. That doesn't, that's not a prelude to some psychiatric disaster. That's, that was, it's actually a potentially very good thing. And so if families make good use of this time, the ideal thing is surprising each other with acts of service, surprising each other with generosity, with forgiveness, that to really stretch yourself according to an ideal. And this is what the, uh, you know, our typical American you know, family, this is the advice they should most hear. You know, to really challenge yourself according to ideal, think of surprising someone you love with it. That's so that you think of beautiful. Out of your ordinary, yes, you have to get out of your ordinary routines and ruts, and give yourself permission to be more warm than you usually are. Give yourself permission to be different than you normally are, guided by this idea of really wanting to love and serve those who are closest to you. And if that happens, this could actually be a time for healing what has been a really fractured American psyche that has just been beset by increasing anxiety and addiction. Because Americans are human doings who aren't very good at being human beings. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it, yes. And, and so this is a good time to do that. It, it sounds like you're already starting to answer a question I like to ask uh, our guests, and that is, what is the good that you think God wants to bring out of this? Well, I would hope that for, uh, for many people, actually, it's a real commitment to deeper faith and a conversion. You know, that faith is the virtue that helps us most to reframe challenges as opportunities. Faith allows us to see the challenges coming from God for our good out of his love for us. And so in a way, nothing new is happening right now. Nothing new is taking place. This is the providence of God at work as it always has been. It's the providence that holds us in being and lets one moment unfold into the next. And it's always been like that. And so we should have, have trust in his providence that whatever happens to us and our loved ones is in fact going to be his will. And faith is what allows us to see that. 
And then yes, to ask for what we need, ask for, so that we are truly hoping in him too, you know, and hoping in him for all of our needs. Tremendous wisdom as usual from you, Kevin. Thank you, you're kind. You, you're talking about your mother and, you know, my father has been uh, sheltered in a, a nursing home assisted living now for several weeks without visitors, uh, which is probably the physically safest place for him. But because the elderly are already somewhat marginalized in our society, social distancing is adding to that. What is the best way we can now help to manage the negative effects of social distancing on many of our elderly uh, loved ones? I, I would have to say that this is a wonderful time for them to discover the closeness of God, that they are in fact not alone, that, you know, they are, uh, that even though they may not be able to receive communion, that the very same God, our Lord, is in the very center of their soul, holding them in being, you know, and they can always make a spiritual communion. They can, they can always learn. And in some ways, that's what they would do with their other loved ones. They can find ways of still staying in touch with them more virtually, we could say. Yes. But, that, but with, with God, it's immediate and it's real. It's never virtual. And so the sense of like to find you know, a deeper sense of the presence of God, a deeper sense of not being alone, that's what we should hope, I think, everyone gets out of this time. It's a, it's, it, solitude for a Christian doesn't imply anything negative. It's always been seen as an oasis, you know, as, as, as something that is restorative. And it can't be that for people. And yet, as Peter Kreeft says, he, he agrees with that, but he'll say, what is the number one punishment that we give to our worst criminals? Solitary confinement, solitude. So a certain part of our society sees that as a negative. Yeah. And so I think that it has more to do, though, with the nature of the criminal <laughs> and the nature <laughs> of the solitude. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> it could be a time for conversion and <laughs> it could be a spiritual feast for them. So I, so I think that we have to just trust that God will be close to those who need him. And, and those who need him most, who are most isolated, this is a time for them to find him. You know, and we relatives who can't be as close to them can still find virtual ways of showing love and, and concern and affection. Many of us in the medical field are wired to be serving others. And yet, as I mentioned earlier, many of us have had to slow down our practices. What do we do with all this pent-up energy, this adrenaline that, that we have that we so much want to use to serve others in medicine? And right now our, our hands are tied to protect those who might be at risk for COVID? I think they should host podcasts. <laughs> That's what I'm doing so I don't drive my family crazy. <laughs> and spend time writing and spend time learning. But, yes. But uh, they need to, uh, I think, you know, I talked about this idea of having, having a schedule, but you can't let your background attention just be spinning on problems. Right. You know, and that's where they can go if there's no present task for you to challenge yourself on. So people need to be creative in coming up with a plan for each day with a kind of variety of ways in which they're going to be challenging themselves. Now, spending time you know, with family certainly is a, is, a, is a priority and finding ways of doing that. But then also having regular work days. And in those work days, now is a wonderful time to do online courses or to, to take um, to be 
delving deeper into things that would make you better at the work that you do, um, to be thinking of how you can be gaining skills in this time. You know, but this can be a wonderful time for acquiring new skills. Uh, even just say, take something like working on, on reading. We read all the time and doctors are always reading. Yes. How much do we actually work on how we read? We can read better and better. We can learn to remember things better. We can learn to approach that task by studying reading itself. Well, who wrote the book? And I've read it several times. I'm looking to see if I have it on my shelf here. I don't have it in front of me, but it's how to read a book. Yeah. Mortimer Adler. Yeah. Mortimer Adler. Yes. Yeah. Tremendously excellent book. I have all my children read that when they get old enough. Yeah, exactly. And so now is a great time for us to be just improving, I think, uh, in the, the kind of component skills that go into our profession so that we come out of this actually better doctors. You, so you can be serving your future patients. That is true. Kevin, I think you've helped answer all the questions I've put together. What else do you want listeners to know about how to handle some of the psychological stresses of forced isolation and the uncertainty of pandemic? Yeah. I, would, I think that the best thing we, in some sense, can do for ourselves is to create around us an atmosphere of serenity and service and to be finding ways each day to, again, surprise the people you're with with your serenity and your service. To be finding a way of, um, of creating this kind of tone around one. Then you will live in the best possible place because you're going to be having this kind of zone around you <laughs> of serenity and a readiness to serve. And then everyone around you will benefit. The, when you focus on being encouraging to others, which means helping them in their challenges, you, you, you actually become uh, lighter yourself. You start to see through the, that, that uh, kind of cloud of, you know, of charged particles, the free-floating anxiety, you know, and, so, and you become just there for the other person. So to aim, like try to see how can I go out of my way to be encouraging to others? That doesn't mean reassuring them. It means instead just helping them to see how they too can, can this can bring out the best in them. Kevin Majors, full of wisdom. Thank you for being with us here on Dr. Doctor. Thank you listeners for being with us for another episode of the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen to their favorite podcast app or at redeemerradio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.